the Making Sense of Life podcast, episode 16. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja. Thank you very much for joining us. You know, they say that truth is stranger than fiction. Well, today we're going to learn about that from our special guest, Rahil Patel. Welcome, Rahil. It's good to have you on the program. It's a great privilege to have you, in fact. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a privilege. Well, in case you don't know, Rahil's life story is powerfully written in this book I've got in my hand here. It's called Found by Love, which Rahil tells me he actually wrote on his iPhone. Is that right? That's true. I wrote the whole book on my phone. You wrote the whole 200 and whatever it is pages, 254 pages on on an iPhone. Um, as I said, but that's not why truth is stranger than fiction. Um, what, I, you know... T- to, to get our listeners a little bit interested here or uh, to uh, pique your curiosity, what has Harry Potter got to do with a Hindu priest? Um, as I said, truth is stranger than fiction. And if you keep listening, you're going to find out what Harry Potter has got to do with a Hindu priest. But let's come back to Rahil. Rahil is of East African, Kenyan, Gujarati origin, brought up in West, northwest London from the age of about five. Now, in many ways, there's nothing extraordinary about that. I mean, um, many um, East African Asians came to the UK in the 1970s, and, and Rahil was one of them with his family. But at the age of 16, he gave a speech in a Hindu temple to 3,000 people that won him great acclaim. So much acclaim that the head of, of the de- de- denomination, the guru, who was there at the time, encouraged him to become a Hindu priest. And that is what Rahil became. A Hindu priest in a 200-year-old denomination with 8,000 centres around the world and 1 million dedicated and loyal followers. So, Rahul, you did that for 20 years, travelling around the world, 70,000 miles a year, and speaking literally to crowds of thousands. But as I said, this really is where truth is so much stranger than fiction. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, yeah, we have to laugh at it because after it is, it's, it is, it's, it's, it's strange, but you laugh at it. Yeah, you could never imagine. <laughs> after those twenty years, you had a spiritual encounter that turned your world upside down. Yes. There was a restlessness in your life, a hunger to search for answers that included devouring literature like Harry Potter and being totally mesmerised and by Harry Potter and all that series and opening up lots of questions about life and the meaning of life for you. But before we get to that. Let's start with your background, because as I said, it parallels that with the experience of so many East African Asians who came to the UK in the 1970s. Tell us a little bit about your background, Rahil. So background, uh, 
as you've said, Gujarati uh, Patel, typical, came from Kenya. Uh, my father settled in northwest London. Initially, he settled in Milton Keynes, but then he came to northwest London. So, growing up, it was the scenario of studying very hard at school, um, getting very good grades, being very competitive uh, in and amidst the whole class. But on weekends, we were always asked to stay plugged into community. So at that time, you know, a Gujaratis always looked for a place to belong. They were looking for a community. They weren't so fussed about a belief or a theology. They wanted to go to a place where they were reminded of times of East Africa, reminded of their culture, reminded of their cuisine, reminded of their languages and the way of doing life. Yes. Because everything British and English was too much to absorb. Yes. And you came from a very accomplished family as well, didn't they? Did yeah, my grandfather, my father's father um, had a huge construction business in Nairobi. He had 4,000 people working for him um, in the 40s and 50s. And he did really well for the Kenyan government in, in, in many ways. And they had projects across Africa that all uh, collapsed in an instant almost when the Kenyan government asked my grandfather to close down the business um, for various political reasons. And he had a heart attack just on hearing that. So my father... And died. And died. And died. He died. Um, at at quite a young age, yeah. At the age of 52. Yes. And so my father was the eldest of, of four. My mother, the eldest on her side as well, of, of, of three. My father quickly had to wind everything up, um, finish the remaining projects, and literally from having several stately homes... Rolls Royces and Mercedes Benzes and, and, and plantations here and there. My mum and dad came to England with just a British passport, my elder brother and myself. And like so many East African nations who had so much over there, coming back here, having lost everything. It was a drastic thing for them, something I didn't fathom because I didn't meet my grandfather. Mm. I never saw that, but I saw photographs of it all as I grew up later on. So my mum and dad were working 16, 18 hours a day mm. in a newsagent. Yes. This was in Milton Keynes, was it? In Milton Keynes, uh, initially. And then me not knowing why they're working so hard. And, you know, I had to go and help here and there wherever I could, even though I was a pest and I used to get in the way. Um, but in England at the time, it was very hard to rebuild a life. But because of the experience the British government had of Indians in East Africa, in that Indians are hardworking, they're very successful. Wherever they go in the world, they tend to make a mark, especially in business. And the Gujarati community especially yeah, so. And, yeah. and the Gujarati community especially so. They very quickly gave um, Gujaratis loans to start up their own businesses. So my father started off with a news agent in Dean Sanger. Mm. Then we moved to London where he became a sales rep to a pharmaceutical company. And that's when the family started getting rhythm. He became a sales rep. We were studying very well in school. We, me and my elder brother Raj were very, very well established in school. 
in sports. We were established in rugby and other sports and education. And your life was sort of between school and, and the temple. How did the temple get involved in all this? So there was a period where my family, before having their own home, were living with another family. Mm. And they were heavily plugged into this particular Hindu denomination. Yes. And I guess it's a cultural thing. You're under obligation, whatever that family does or wherever they go, if they ask you, you almost have to say yes and go. Yes. So, because you're living with them. Because you're living with and them. And they're being so hospitable to you. Yeah, yeah they're, they're being so kind. And so... My parents would just go. My parents were quite liberal as Hindus, you know, initially in East Africa and when they initially moved to England. But as soon as they started living with this family, they became very regular going to the temple in North London. And, um, and you were the youngest, weren't you, there, of, of, of eight people? I was the youngest, and, and that was very difficult, very challenging in the house because there was a... There was a typical hierarchy, um, I guess, like there are in many Indian homes. And I used to always get the shortest straw sitting on the floor if there's no space on the sofa. <laughs> right, OK. It was, like, it was like a finishing school at home. And, um, and I think in a sense, and so you began to find a place more and more, I suppose, within the temple. I'm just quoting from your book here. It says, during this uncomfortable period, my visits to the temple became more frequent. It was now my outlet and space to breathe in peace. I would attend mid midweek, sweep the floors, wash the utensils or just sit and pray before the images. I began to like it more and more and found it calming and peaceful. I stayed overnight on many weekends to take part in various activities that we, we, we would perform during religious festivals. Saturday nights were fun. Friends and I would cook and eat together. We would play football or cricket indoors and then practice speech, drama or dance for any upcoming festival. My reading of the Hindu scriptures began to develop and I started learning verses by heart and quite, could quite easily quote them mid-conversation. I was fasting quite regularly and decided to sleep on the floors at home to add more simplicity and discipline to my life. I cancelled most TV from my schedule, watching only the news. And so that's a fascinating sort of life, you know, in, in, in secular Britain. You're, you're, you're living, you know, you're, you're, you're drawn more and more to the temple and, and as well. Yes, I think the book unpacks at a subtle level one key aspect, and that is when we're, in my case anyway, when you're unaware of unmet needs... We tend to make choices and decisions based upon um, those needs that are not being met. Yeah. So in this season in my life, things at home were not good. Uh, with my parents, it wasn't good. There was, there was plenty of wealth. By now, my father had worked very hard and established us very well in London in a comfortable home with nice cars and good living. I guess there are sort of dimensions of, of their behavior based upon how they were living in East Africa, yeah. that residue may have still been left behind in their behavior patterns. So things at home were quite tough. You know, my parents would argue quite a bit. Um, my elder brother was hardly at home in that season. He was studying with another friend elsewhere. So I was at home a lot and witnessing all these fights and arguments, you know, and, and uh, 
gripped with fear most of the time. So a switch in my heart took place, and that was the temple, going to the temple. Whereas early on in my life, I hated going to the temple. I was forced to go to the temple. And I, but now it became an outlet of, of just being and just sort of praying and serving and being on my own there, you know? And so in 1988, you were just 16, and someone called Guruji came to London from India. And that was a quite a pivotal time. Tell us about that. So by this time, by 1988, I was in charge of the young youth activities, and I was asked to give a speech in, in the congregation. And there were about 3,000 people seated there. And it was very natural to me. It was very normal. And I even remember that moment quite vividly. To my surprise, the crowd went quite ecstatic. They, they, they loved it. They applauded. And the guru himself got so engrossed in the talk. Wow. What were you talking about? It was based upon one of the scriptures that we would read daily in our morning prayers. Every morning we woke up and before having any water or food, we had to have a bath and pray. Right. And there was one particular scripture we read and I, and I gave a talk on that scripture and from that, from that I was talking about family life. So he loved it, the crowd loved it and afterwards I went to bow to him. And tell us about who is this Guruji? Who is he? To explain that to us. So he's the head of the whole uh, denomination, um, the spiritual head of that whole organization today. Um, he's also the president of the organization as well. So literally at the time, um, he is God on earth. Wow, that's quite, a, that's quite a claim. That is quite a claim. He is God on earth and whatever he says, does, God is doing that through him. He is your conduit to God. When he speaks, God is speaking. When he's listening, God is listening. It was that strongly etched in all of our minds. And like it is to many people who are still there today. Yeah. And he gave a great affirmation to you, didn't he? Yeah. So when I went to bow to him, he, he was so happy. He said, that was amazing. You know, you've got a great gift. Why don't you think about being a Hindu priest? Wow. And for me, see, that's... That's the whole community that you know. And immediately I got this recognition from God, you know, uh, who's the center of, of the universe. Wow. And out of thousands of people, suddenly I'm... You're the center of attention. I'm at the center of attention. Wow. So a combination of things which I unpacked many years later and, and I still unpack today... You know, immediate recognition, attention, um, not just from him, from the people, and that comfort of a sort of father-mother figure. Yes, but this wasn't good news for your parents. No, they were. They were. Really you. You might have thought that they might have been sort of very proud that their son. Yeah. Has got, but it wasn't good news for them. It wasn't good news because in that denomination, if you become a priest, you renounce everything. Yes. So that means you renounce all communications with your parents as well. Mm. There's no talking with your parents for the rest of your life. Wow. There's no marrying. It's it's a life of celibacy. Wow. And so there's in in a typical Gujarati culture, you want family, you want lineage, you want children. So for my parents, it was a shock, massive shock. See, they were happy 
for me and my elder brother to go to the temple. But then when this whole concept... They take it so seriously. That was a shock to them. Yes. Now, what was difficult for them was they were also in the system. Now, they couldn't couldn't upset Guruji. Because if you upset Guruji, you're blacklisted. And you're upsetting God. You're you're upsetting God. You know, it's, it's a massive shock. And on this side, they had their two children, me wanting to be a Hindu priest. Yes. So they were really stuck. They're stuck. Yeah. And, and so you're continuing to grow up. You did very well in your GCSEs and your parents give you permission with your brother Raj to travel with Guruji to the United States for two months. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, was... That um, <laughs> <laughs> sounds incredible. That was incredible at the time. You tra- I think you, you say that you travel 45,000 miles? 45,000 miles. We covered the whole of North America. It's <laughs> incredible, right? We did the whole circumference and a few cities in the center. And um, throughout that whole tour, he gave me incredible recognition. Yeah. He says, doesn't he? He says, I think you were in, in Atlanta. Um, and he says... Um, he says this in front of thousands of people. He says, um, what, let me just find it. He says, I have trust that this boy will one day perform great things for our organization. He will advance it in many ways. Yeah, he wow. said that. I remember that. That's, yes. He, he said that on many And how old, are you then? how old are you at that point? In, in, at that point, I was about still 16 still after, my GC, after my GCSE Jesus, goodness, still, me. 16. still only 16 yeah. yeah wow so he kept on drawing this out uh, a lot of the times in public um, you know acknowledging me in public he'd find me in the middle of an audience and and say these kind of things again and again yeah and again just you know it's your relationship with him as well because obviously that was that was something quite special and unique but yeah, tell us a little about that yeah it was special. I, I don't know how or why, but at the time, I had easy access to him. Mm. I didn't have to go through any senior priests. He gave me a cop, you know, a cop blanche. Whenever you want to speak to me, just phone me. Um, if I wanted to see him in private, as soon as I would walk into his room, everyone else would leave. He had told everyone and anyone that whenever he needs me, Whenever he wants to speak to me, just let him through and nobody's to stop him. So there was this, for me, ecstatic relationship. I didn't have to go through the system, you know, which was a really strong structure, uh, a very hierarchical system, you know, of trustees and senior priests and local senior priests. I could bypass the whole system uh, most of the time um, to meet him. So at the time, people used to say to me that it's because of your past karma. Okay, your past life and everything it's like because that. because of your past life and all the great deeds you've acclaimed in your past life. That's why you've had such an advancement in this life, which I mentioned in the book that this is what they used to say to me. Wow. You have such an advancement in this life. That's why you have this easy access. That's he knows why you. you. Yes. He knows every detail of your life. Yeah. He, he, he remembers you. And it's quite incredible in terms of, because he was quite a, quite a person. I mean, you write about him here. He said, people like Guruji have developed a very distinctive and yet attractive personality. They can speak what is in your mind as well as hypnotically give you the most powerful stare or smile that can send you head over heels. I'm not sure how he learned this, but at the time, that level of magical dynamism in his eyes could only be of God. 
Oh, it could only be of God, I thought. How could a simple old man, born in a village in India, dressed in orange, raise millions and millions of pounds from intellectuals across the globe, people who were managing massive businesses as well as holding very high positions in banks and corporations? It was fascinating to see the paradox of his job title against the job level of the people he was attracting. I mean, quite a... It is, it is. um, It's quite an interesting uh, scenario there. Yes. Um... People like Guruji, they acquire a mystical presence, I feel, because of the people who worship them, really. Yes. It's not the person. No. It's the posture of the hearts towards the person. And the kind of and the amount of devotion that, that, yeah. that, that, that he sort of ins- inspires and continues as well. I mean, you, you say... Um, but let's, just get, let's, come, let's come back to you, Rahel, as well, because you return back to the UK... And obviously this fascination and devotion to the Guruji and to the temple is growing and growing. Yeah. And you and Raj decide, much against your parents' wishes, that you both want to become swamis. Yeah. Okay. And you decide on the 25th of October, 1991, aged only 19, that you're going to run away from home. Yeah. Tell it, I mean, goodness me, when you... So when you wrote about it in the book, I thought, my goodness, I just, yeah, just tell us about that because... So we were yeah. struggling at home yeah. to get permission from my parents. Yeah. And we had a few chats with, with Guruji, you know, and he sort of gave a green light that, look, try and explain as much as you can. If not, then just leave. Wow. So that was something of a huge relief for us. Because God was saying that. Because God was saying that. You know, yeah. God is saying to go against your parents, mm. if you know, and so go for it. So we planned it quite strategically. We collected clothes and yeah, said day by day, you day by day, we collected clothes and put it in a friend's car. Goodness. And then you know, we 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 bought tickets and had the tickets sent to another friend's home, and we decided to fly from an airport where. Uh, we, Truth is stranger than fiction, isn't it? <laughs> we were we were sure not to bump into anyone that we knew, so we flew from Gatwick, and um, on that very day we left home only with the clothes that we had on our yeah. bodies. And your dad came out of the house my in the da- morning. In the morning, my dad came out. He came out of the bathroom. And he said, "You're you're early today." So it just came out of my mouth. I said, "Yeah, we're going shopping today. Lots to do, you know." And he gave me £10. And as I was writing this in the book, I actually had tears in my yeah, eyes. Yeah, I mean, I, I was so moved when you wrote that as well. I, I, thought, I really had tears in my eyes. And I sensed in his eyes that he knew something was up. Mm. And he gave me £10. And that was, re- that was a really powerful gesture from my dad. Yes. Both my dad and mum knew something was up. Yes. But they were so beautifully patient and, and quiet about the whole thing, um, which I didn't realize then in my fascination, in my adamant-minded ambition. I just didn't know. But um, and then we left the home, yeah. hoping that he's not following us. Yeah. In the road next to our road, my friends were waiting in the getaway car. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We, we climbed in the car and made our way to Gatwick Airport and... We ran away. You um, ran away. Age of 19, you go to India, you, and you're going now into six years of training to become a Swami, to become a Hindu priest. I mean, 
this learning was intense. Just tell us, just tell us about your day. I mean, it, it, when you told when the day, just tell us about it. <laughs> so the day, I mean, the monastery training center in India is on a 250-acre campus. It's in the middle of the desert. So it's like a university campus with dorms and classes and all, all sorts of facilities. So you wake up at 4.30 every morning and you take a cold bath. Um, you finish your personal prayer before 6 o'clock. Right. At 6 o'clock, all the 200 priests and the whole campus congregate together in the campus temple. That's where corporate worship starts at 6 o'clock, finishes at 6.30. Yes. From 6.30 to 7.30, you do chores. So you're given a list of things to do and it changes every two weeks. Okay. Cleaning the toilets, sweeping the floors, picking flowers for the idols in the temple, all sorts of different things you do. 7.30, everyone has breakfast. Um, and 8.30, sorry, 8.15, you sit for the morning sermon. That morning sermon lasts 45 minutes. And every two weeks, there's an exam on that sermon. Oh, wow. So there's a three-hour paper on that exam, which you're expected to get at least 90% or above. Whoa. So that's an intense paper you take every three every two weeks yes after the nine o'clock sermon is over then your classes start until twelve thirty. so it could be business management it could be sanskrit it could be world religions and mainly all the indian philosophies and doctrines you study in depth wow. so it's intense study and then you go for lunch then you study a little more you and you knew you were going into all this like. yeah you knew you were going into all of this so you know it's a lot to take in. Yes. And six years sounds like a long time, but there's so much to take in. I mean, this, this is more intensive than medicine or becoming a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very intensive. It's very intensive. And if you're not on the ball, in the first year of, in the first year of training, yes. the mentors actually oversee and actually check whether you can make it or not. And out of all the entries, on average, 45% are sent home. Okay, wow. Yeah. Because the mentors will think you can't cope it's with just this life. Yeah. Because it's also a life of celibacy. Yeah. It's a life of discipline. You don't touch money. You have no bank account. Well, that's, yes. You, 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 don't have, you, don't, you don't own anything. You don't own anything. You know, you're completely given to the organization. You're completely dependent on these people. Yes. You've no bank account. You've got... Nothing. You've got no identity because you, you're given a number, weren't you? Yes. Yeah, well? So initially you're given a number. So, and it's not just studying. What was your number? My initial number was five. <laughs> you were just called five. Five. And then it went to 31, then it was 665. And you're given a number. So more than just the studying, you know, there's, a, there's an internal discipline that's required of you. And that is to emotionally and physically erase your whole childhood Goodness. from your psyche. That's the most... And you're willingly going into this. And you're willingly going into it because you don't know, because everyone's doing it and that's the only world you know and that's God telling you to forget your whole childhood, forget your parents, they don't exist anymore. Anything and everything tethered to your childhood or to the moment of the day you entered into the training centre needs to be deleted from your system, mm. from your psyche. Forget it, it's all burned, it's dead. <sighs> so that's how deep and intense the internal training is, yes. which is which is way, way more challenging than the external studies. Yes. And if we just talk about, you know, I mean, Hinduism is vast and huge, but 
in a few sentences, I mean, what, what's the basic philosophy of the, of, the, of the Hinduism that you were learning? I mean, can you give it in a few sentences? The one that I was learning is is based upon the Vaishnava uh, uh, philosophies. It's more of the bhakti philosophy, which is more devotional. Right. It's based upon, um, um, you know, that the guru is the gateway to heaven. The guru is the gateway to God. This living man is... This living man wearing orange robes. If you meditate on him, if you worship him, if you think upon him, if you obey him, wow. you're directly obeying God and you will have a seat in the supreme heaven, which Goodness. is above all heavens. And that's where you'll end up being. Wow. If you serve him wholeheartedly, without questioning, without doubting. Without and everybody around you is saying the same thing. Everyone around you is saying the same thing. Goodness, yes. Wow. But at the same time, so you have this incredible experience, as you were, from 4.30 to what, 11 o'clock at night or something like that? 11 o'clock at night, yeah. Yeah, so it's, those are pretty long days. Especially when it's summer. When it's summer, it hits 40 Celsius. Yeah. And at night you can't even sleep because you're sleeping on the floor. So the tiles underneath you are, are baking hot and the heat comes through the bedding. Goodness. So you're sweating all night. And you fast five times in a month. How long did, I mean, how long, because you went in with such excitement to do this. And, and how long did you sort of begin to think, what have I let myself in for? I think in my first month. Yeah. In yeah. my very first month. And yet you could, yet you survived it. You went through it. You, you didn't drop out. You don't drop out because of various dimensions. You don't drop out because of fear of failure. Okay. You don't drop out because of shame and guilt. Okay. Now, I went, I ran away from home, A. Yes, that's true. B, I was Guru's favourite, literally his favourite. So you had a lot to live up to. And yeah, and C, the whole, my name became a household name very quickly because of Guruji's attention. Wow. So you were known around the world. Around the, the world. Yes. You know, because there were so many recordings of his interaction with me in public places. Wow. So I was this chosen guy destined for great things, ran away from home, upset my family, and internally my struggle had begun. Because, yeah, because doubts were coming, weren't they? Yeah, doubts began in my first month. I was worshipping upstairs in the temple. There was a hundred other priests there. And suddenly this really silent yet authentic sort of whisper in my left ear came saying... Are you sure you've done the right thing? Are you in the right place? And that shook me massively to the extent where I just stopped prostrating to the idols and I looked over the balcony and I just went into this gaze and I thought, oh my gosh. I remember vividly all the other priests engaged in worship and I just suddenly felt so isolated. But then I had to shake that thought off. I had to shake the idea off and just pretended. Yes, because you talk about it, that you thought that, that if you matured spiritually through meditation, that you'd be able to still your mind. If you chanted the various names of the Hindu gods and you studied the scriptures more, that your mind would come to rest and the doubts would vanish. But you yeah. say, I was just fooling myself. It's what you say in the book. Yes, exactly. So I, I thought, yes, as I continue, this will happen. This may happen. This will happen. And it, 
didn't come. It was just like chasing wind and chasing wind and chasing wind. And and, and I, I was really moved when I read it. You, see, you said, I got so good at pretending that I could even pretend to myself. My life of two worlds had begun, an inner one of growing disbelief, although trying my best to believe, and the other an outer showing of, showing of a brave face that were always well and fine. And... But it, it, but it was beginning to tell because your health was beginning to deteriorate as well, wasn't it? Yeah, in those years of training, I had malaria, I think, five times out of that. And top of that, twice brain malaria, you know. So my health, my internal decay had become, you know, stronger. And um, this whole new life of pretending had begun. It began, yes. This superficial facade of showing a brave confident face and people were taken in because i mean your your as you said your um your name was was getting more and more uh, yeah. i'd recognize your talks were getting more and more appreciated as well yeah which uh, was yeah i used to tell people when much later in my life when i was doubting when i was so doubting before i even got on the microphone but oh, sorry before i started speaking i would say please don't record this oh. simply because I didn't believe it in my heart myself. Wow. And yet I would find out that within weeks, Houston in North America had my talks. Someone in India would have it. Someone in South Africa would have it. Wow, yeah. That's how people would flock to hear my talks. Wow. So here you are. You're getting more and more deeply versed in Hinduism. As You went on a pilgrimage to 20 sacred sites. You did 2,000 miles in 14 days. You're really you're heading out to work in Mumbai. But also, you're, you're also increasingly drawn to personal development books, management books, leadership books. You know, there's a, there's a whole industry of it, and you're devouring those. And the Bible, you come across Isaiah 33, verse 6, wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of thy time. Yeah. Um, that sort of struck you. And yes. then you say, I remember people were more drawn to the talks, which I based on Western books I'd read about, personal development, and not on the, on the usual Hindu scriptures I read daily. Yeah, so this 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 sort of reflection hit me in Mumbai hmm. after my two thousand mile pilgrimage. Hmm. I was in Mumbai and I was reading self help books a lot and giving talks a lot to the sort of more Western minded Indians in Mumbai. Yes, and I noticed that they were drawn more to these ideas that I was bringing from self help books and. Um, I was wondering why is why why aren't the scriptures attracting them? Mm. I was wondering why aren't the scriptures attracting me? Mm. Why am I looking? If everything is in the scripture, yes. Then why am I seeking in self help books? What am I seeking here? Yes. What's... I was asking myself this question that what's not satisfying me there in Hindu scripture that I'm having to look in self help books, and I devoured them. Yes. I kept on devouring them more and more. And then preaching about them as well. And then preaching about them. And people were drawn to that. Yes. So I was questioning myself that why are they drawn to this and not that? Yeah. What's feeding them here? You know? Yes. So I think my book and my story is is about a search. You know? Yes. We're designed, I know now, I'm saying it in the words I know now of, that we're designed to search for the heart of God. God. Yes. We're designed for a genuine quest. And a genuine relationship. And genuine relationship, you know. And until we get 
connected to that, we're always on this search and these questions and that's central to my... Yeah, and we're going to come to that. We're going to come to that, surely. But you're also, you mentioned you're becoming increasingly sick and I think, you know, the Guruji decides to send you to London as a Swami and to head out the work there. So you're going to be charged in charge of developing Europe and Russia. So you, you come to London. I mean, when I read it, it's staggering. You come to London, you're in charge of 60 staff, 150 volunteers. You've got a global operation. You're traveling 70,000 miles a year. You're working from 6 a.m. to midnight, seven days a week. I mean, I thought, was this fun? Was this exhilarating? What was this? So it gives you an address. I had a, so, it, so Europe initially only had 25 people in the congregation and then I developed it to about 500 people. Right. And then we started having temples in Antwerp, in Lisbon, in Paris and various centers all the way up to Moscow, you know, in, in Sweden, Norway. We were traveling. I traveled to Europe literally 400 times. So the staff uh, across Europe, the, the, the main the main team was, of, I had a team of 10 in London overseeing the whole of Europe. I had a full-time PA yeah. and the, the team across the whole of Europe was 150. Um, so it was externally fun. It gave me a buzz. It gave me a kick, but it was like having a Lucozade, you know? When you have a Lucozade, it gives you a quick pike, and then the and drop is the drop is deeper than the initial pike. Yes, and an incredible sense of loneliness, I'm sure. Then as well, I mean, you, you talk about you start thinking. You, you say um, to your friend Akash, you said, "Don't you ever wonder if I'm teaching you the truth? You're yes. loved and revered by thousands, but you're feeling unsettled. You're told try not to ask too many questions, or you'll get depressed by the answers." Yeah. Um, you say one month I had constant recital on, on the Upanishads, on the Hindu scriptures there, and it said, I felt that I was staring at a brick wall. And you speak to the CEO, Swami, about progress. He says, the results will come after years of practice, dear friend. Be patient. And, but, you know, why do I have to earn God's love through such hard work if I'm not getting any stillness? How will, will I be able to convince a congregation? I mean, you're, you're trying incredibly hard. You read 150 books on Hinduism. Yeah. So that was an intense time of my life, studying further, intensifying the meditations, seeing what I could tap into, into that realm, and then hopefully give that to the Western world in English, you know, so I was studying a lot more. Um, It was more of a struggle because I was finding nothing. But then this fascination with Christianity and the person of Jesus Christ. You, you describe it, I love the title, in chapter 17, you call it the beginning of a secret love affair. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> like that. Lisbon Airport. Tell us about Lisbon Airport. Well, um, it's, it's more, Lisbon, we used to have our European conferences in Lisbon. And I... After the conference, we used to go to a place called Cap de Rock, which is the westernmost point of continental Europe. It's closest to America, even in Ireland. And it's a beautiful scene of the Atlantic Ocean, and it's a lovely coastline. And there's a Christian cross there. And I used to... I used to... I remember loving to just hang around the cross, Mm. just be under it, sitting by it. My PA was, he wasn't a yes man, but when it was my personal, 
when he sensed there was something personal going on in my heart, he would never probe. So the congregation would be elsewhere in that whole area. And I noticed that they were staring at me, wondering, this guy's, something's going on in this guy's mind, in this guy's heart uh, about Christ and Christianity. But because my position and my influence was so high, people didn't question me on my face. Mm. As I mentioned in my book, I, I used to love going in and out of churches. You visited Rome 20 times, didn't you? I visited Rome 20 times. I only had a congregation of nine people in Rome, <laughs> but I made an excuse to go there at least once or twice a year just to be in the atmosphere of those beautiful churches. Yes. You know, there was something attractive, not the art and architecture, yeah. but there was something attractive in there, you know? And I remember sitting in the Sistine Chapel the Swiss guards used to give me a special place to sit because it's usually packed in there. Right. So just underneath the painting of The Last Judgment, they used to take me inside the banner. And just look at this. This is a man who's a Hindu Swami dressed in orange robes? Yes, I was dressed in orange robes in the Sistine Chapel. It's quite a stark contrast, isn't it? It's unusual to put it mildly. It's a stark contrast. I know. It's like, you know, you're sitting in the Sistine Chapel, the Swiss guards are looking after you. And they give you a special... Truth place. is stranger than fiction. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're giving you a special place to sit. And I remember looking up at the paintings by Botticelli, you know, of Jesus on one side and John the Baptist on the other. And I just remember saying to myself vividly that this just makes sense. You right. Know? I never knew the stories, but I just... I said, this makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, in, in, I mean, once I was roaming around in St. Peter's in the main basilica... And this cardinal approached me, mm. an Indian fellow, and he just started talking with me and took me down inside the vault, mm. took me underneath the whole basilica. Right. Uh, through all these old secret little passageways, you know, right. you read in some kind of novel. It was fascinating. Yeah. And I, I was just intrigued by his love, intrigued by his kindness, intrigued by his gentleness. Yes. And, I, and, and this was another secret sort of attraction that when I met Christians, there was, a, there, was a beautiful, there was a beautiful, authentic kindness about them, you know? Yeah, because you mentioned that because you also went to the Willow Creek Church in, in the US as in, well. In, in Chicago, uh, um, Bill Hybels' church, yes. and uh, we went there, and my goodness, because we were asked to study the concept of mega churches yes and their operation from a financial point of view ah oh, right okay. so mega churches um, was featured in the economist right so we used to read the economist we used to read the harvard business review okay. because management administration was a part of our whole yeah you've got a multi million dollar organization exactly with you've thousands got millions of, people, of yeah you got millions of, of pounds coming in i mean i was managing what because i was initially looking after a lot of england as well there was 30 million pounds of property i was overseeing right so you've got to know your your management you've got to know a lot of things because you're reporting to board members and you need to get the maths right right when you're building a temple you need to have the initial funds then you need to have a business model so that the temple is self-sustaining wow Goodness. then you have to have enough tithing so that that money can get come back to london it was a whole international operation so the mega churches was a fascinating concept yes. so but you were fascinated though by by the love and devotion that you saw and the yeah yeah we went to see the management when I went in there, the presence 
And these people weren't wearing any robes. No. They were just normal civilians. But I was just so attracted to their to the to what they were carrying you know there was such a beautiful presence about them fascinating so there's the sort of if you like the religious kind of spiritual side but there's also this searching this restlessness also through because you're also quite a, a, an avid reader so harry potter <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what fascinated you about harry potter harry potter um uh, he, as you as you know now, you know I've I've read a lot, not just Hindu doctrine. I I, I read so many different um, self help books. Harry Potter was a book that was given to me by another priest, and then I read that. I read those books five times over. Wow! All seven. Right. What struck me more than anything, and I knew at the time that the you know some of the Christians were upset with 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 J.K. Rowling's you know take on wizardry and witchcraft and all the rest of it. But what really struck me at at the core of my heart was this unpacking of love, right? And how death and the enemy, however strong he may be, can never ever defeat love. Mm. And what she unpacked in these books as well were the dynamics of trust, loyalty between friendships. And it was a constant theme of self-sacrificial love coming through mm. these, these, these um, Self-sacrificial characters. love, right. Yeah. And especially, you know, especially in the last book. And I followed all of her interviews and I compiled a thick book wow. of all of her interviews and on how she was unpacking each individual character who had a journey of his or her own before they came to the point of Harry Potter. Right. So it was it was a depth that I had never known. It wasn't of any any sort of intellect. Yes. There was there was such a beautiful theme of love throughout her books. Yes. And that's what really sparked my search for a love. Yeah, for a love, this this self-sacrificial love. I couldn't articulate it then, but it just really attracted me. It attracted <sighs> me. I know it sounds weird. You've got this priest, me, in orange robes, overseeing 1,600 people, you know, visiting prime ministers and presidents, reading Harry Potter and crying. Wow. It's a bizarre scene, isn't it's very it? very bizarre, yes. Yeah, but it's those moments in those books where there's self-sacrificial yes. love. We're going to come back to Harry Potter and you actually ended up meeting J.K. Rowling. Yes, I did. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, in a, in a, in a short while, but I want to keep on the, on the theme about the literature. Um, Lord of the Rings as well had, yeah. had a big impact on you as well. Lord of the Rings had a, had a massive impact on me um, and, and I've quoted Lord of the Rings in my book as That's well. right. You said, uh, I remember the scene in the second film when Samwise Gamgee says to Frodo Baggins something along these lines. Mr. Frodo, even if there is the smallest amount of good in this world, it's worth fighting for it. Frodo had lost heart as darkness had taken over. This beautiful birth of hope from Samwise struck every chord in my heart. So... There's, there's a lot of there's hope. A lot of hope. So, so you know, so this hope. thing, this fascination with the cross and Christ and and uh, Christian uh, imagery and, and artistry yeah. in Rome. I even went to Oxford to see where Tolkien and C.S. Lewis used to meet. Right. And discuss the Narnia books. 
He went again as a Hindu priest. As a Hindu priest, not in <laughs> I went into the pub. Oh, I, wait, the, the the bird and the eagle. Yes, yeah. I went in there to see where when uh, where uh, Tolkien and and I and I read about C.S. Lewis too and how he had lost his faith and how Tolkien and in my heart I remember telling friends at the time I was so proud in my heart that Tolkien reinstated. C.S. Lewis's faith. Right, yeah. Secretly, I was always excited if Christian numbers were rising or if Christianity right. was increasing. I was secretly always happy about that. I remember really well being happy yes. that Christian numbers are rising, even though I was in orange robes yeah. preaching a Hindu doctrine. But this is having a huge effect on you because you're also becoming increasingly unwell now. You've got yeah. sleep disorder, you've got fibromyalgia, you've got pelvic floor problems, you've got gas gastrointestinal problems, you've got nightmares. Yes. You're on 40 tablets a day. Yeah, so by 2009, 10, you know, things got really bad. I mean, for years and years, I was in hospital in Harley Street, Manhattan, Houston, Chicago. 2010, things got so bad. You know, I, I by now, the European operation was running really well, smoothly, almost on autopilot. Okay. I loved delegating things, you know. I had a West End project going on, but my health got so bad. You know, 40 tablets of Ayurvedic, homeopathy, allopathy, alternative, all sorts. Yeah. I spoke to my brother about it and uh, he found out about the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. It's the creme de la creme of all clinics apparently mm. and they don't take you just because you've got lots of money they take you if you're a really rare case mm. so my doctor from harley street sent my file over mm. um this is october 2010 mm -hmm. and they accepted me i went to jacksonville florida um before my plane took off i told my pa look i'm switching off mm. Um, I'm not taking any calls. I need to sort this out. You know, this is serious. I'm not even 40 and this is all happening in my body and I need to sort this out. These nightmares, were they were killing me. Mm. I had these sensations of these electric currents going through my body in the middle of the night. I would shake at night. This continued even in the Mayo Clinic. Mm. Um, it was such a depressing time of my life. It was such internal turmoil externally I was preaching and getting standing ovations from eight to 10,000 people. Wow. Uh, you know, it was a regular feature of my life before I even get on the stage, people yeah. are clapping and cheering. Yeah. When I get off the standing ovation, it was a normal feature, but this internal turmoil decay was just killing me, literally killing me. So I went, you know, until then I just, all my doubts and my struggles were suppressed by my busyness. Yes. When I went there to the Mayo Clinic, I was living with a family who had a beautiful home with a swimming pool just outside the clinic. And uh, they looked after me. And there I was sort of forced to rest. Mm. Okay, on some weekends, I went around the US to preach and teach, you know. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I was in the clinic. So five doctors each chairman of their department oh my goodness were overseeing me and they just sat with me saying you are too young for all of this what's going on in your life yes so i was there for 10 months and i think now you're deciding i can't carry on i can't yeah. i can't carry on like this so it was it was a season when i was just it was brewing in my heart but it 
hadn't articulated in my head what I needed to do. Because to leave that organization, you know, it's it's a massive, massive um, decision. Mm. You know, you, you, you've not been paid for 20 years. You've got no CV. There's so much fear. There's so much guilt of an unknown world. There's so much shame attached to it. And th- there's the unknown. Mm. You know, there's the unknown. Um, and... And you're cut off from your, you know, you're you had cut, you're cut from off your parents. You're, 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 you don't know what to do at that age, you know. So it was brewing in my heart, but my mind wasn't ready for it until, until then, 2011. I came back to London after ten months in the clinic. I stayed for a month in London. Yes, I went to India to see the guru. That was yeah. Tell us about that. That was that was that was heartbreaking most, for you. That oh. was the most hurtful time of my life. Mm. You know, um, there were issues. Um, you know that he wanted you, discussing. Yeah, because you'd lied about the cancerous polyp. I, I I I I what I loved about being in the clinic was that I was outside of the system. Yes. So I wanted to make up an excuse of how I could come back to America and spend some time in the clinic with my doctors who had now become friends who were not in the organization. Mm. That's were, right, because you're being monitored the whole time. Uh, you're always monitored all the always time. Always someone watching you or with you, yeah. You're traveling in pairs. There's always a civilian with you. It's such a controlling and manipulative environment. So being in the clinic was freeing, mm. as weird as it sounds. So I'm, I made up a lie that I've got cancer polyps mm. and I need to go to America once a year. Mm. So that information somehow leaked out and he he knew about it which wasn't the major issue he had the major issue he had were reports of my theology and my doctrine right that's uh, right because yeah, yeah because my, because of my travel because of my reading because of my meeting different people throughout yes. my years i was my mind was being poked by god yes. that hey i am much bigger than just this idol that you're worshiping or this guru the beauty that I was being exposed to, like I mentioned in the book of the Kukunov Gardens in Holland right, yeah. or, 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 or the beautiful Alps in, in Switzerland. So my theology was changing uh, from the central doctrine and I was preaching about a much bigger God. My thoughts were, my thoughts were going beyond the borders of the organization. And I noticed that people were getting attracted to that. They were traveling for miles, you know, some... Very few hated it and were quite disturbed, but lots were attracted. Mm. Again, because of my position and influence, people couldn't challenge me. But these reports, I found out in the very last days, were getting leaked to the very top. Yes. So I went to India, and and this is how the book actually starts, um, to meet him after one and a half years. He's my father and mother figure. He's always had my back. It's a very political environment, and whenever I felt cornered, I could always run to him and he'd have my back and get me out of any tight corner yes. or just tell anyone if need me to back off and leave this guy alone. So I went there and um, just to say hi, I knew something was brewing. As soon as I landed in Mumbai, I went straight to the temple and as soon as I went to the temple, a couple of priests who were close friends of mine said, listen, there's going to be a few bomb blasts in the meeting. Just agree to everything, submit, don't argue back. And I was really annoyed with that because mm. I had just said yes, yes, yes to everything. You know, I, I was preaching a theology that didn't exist. Right. I was told by senior swamis 
that look, this whole theology was made up anyway, just preach it. Ooh. You know, this was all, sh I was just preaching a superficial fake theology that didn't even exist. And I was asked to do that. The irony was by the senior most people, you've got very good English, you've got great speaking skills, you've got influence in the West. We need this cemented in people's minds to just keep on going. Wow. So I had, I was done with, done with just agreeing with things that I don't believe in. So I went into the meeting and he wasn't himself, you know, he wasn't this, hey, son, you've been back after one and a half years. It was none of that. Mm -hmm. It was just verbal slaughter. He used the lie of the cancer polyps. Oh, I see. Okay. More than anything. Yes. And then... As a deception, basically. As a deception, basically. But somehow it was an orchestrated meeting. There were all the senior brass in the, in the room. Usually I get a one-on-one -on -one with him alone. But mm. this time everyone was there and it was just like... You know, people were just firing, firing, and they had it all well planned. And he punished me by saying, no more Europe. You're going to spend time in villages in the in India, which is a massive shock, or, or go to the most remote part of America. Basically, wherever you have no influence, yeah, because you're influencing people too much. Yeah. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. First time in my life, I sort of said no. And then it became a bit more forceful. And then it just came out of my mouth. After 20 years, I said, okay, look, I want to leave. I don't want to be a Swami anymore. I just want to go home. Mm. And this silence fell in the room, you know. You could hear everyone's breathing. Mm. And to my peace and yet shock, he sort of said, fine, go. After 20 years, you know, I had served this Person guy. you'd given it, you'd given it, well, you'd literally given everything, you'd given everything, you'd given everything. everything to him. I built his empire in Europe and it's obvious at the time, nobody could have built Europe. It was so barren, so difficult. The cultural diversity, the political climate within the nations towards Hinduism was so strong. In that whole dynamic, I built an empire for him mm. against my whole health for six o'clock in the morning to 12 midnight for 20 years I served this man as God I preached his name even though in my heart I knew he wasn't God yes yeah, I just thought okay let's just go for this and when it didn't agree with his palate he said okay go and it wasn't as if you know shall I shall we do something for you Let, let's get you a home or something can we get I had nothing yeah, just, just you know, go. And just go. And then he said, where would you like to us to send you? And I'm like, gosh, you know, is that it? It was in 20 minutes, he severed 20 years mm. of our relationship. And it and to him, it didn't mean much. Mm. It just didn't mean much. And I was like, I was peaceful about the fact that I'm leaving, but I was in such a shock. I went down in my room just looked over the Mumbai skyline and my, my thoughts just froze. That mm. here's a guy I gave my whole life to. I believed him to be God initially. Even though my doubts increased, I still served, pushed, raised millions of pounds for him, mm. you know, and preached across the globe for him, for his name. And suddenly, you're just cut off and thrown out. So... Yeah, that was that yeah, meeting. And so you fly back to London, 
You have yeah. a friend who lets you stay in his hotel. Yeah, I come back in civilian clothes. Yes. That's right. You said, yeah, that's right. No longer that. that the, the, no longer your... orange clothes, no longer traveling in first class and no longer escort at the airport. And none of that fancy travel, people carrying your bags and photographs and yes, all that. Came back to London and um, a friend of mine said, look, come and stay in the hotel and, you know, I'll I'll put you up. I'll not tell anyone that you're here. Yes. Refresh, you know, get, get refreshed and let's see what we can do and find you a job or something yes and then you sort of um you walk on january 2012 you walk into holy trinity bromptonshire (laughs) yeah so uh, i came back to london and i because of the hurtful past few weeks i had a forgotten my secret encounters and attraction with christ yes and i frankly had parked the whole idea of spirituality you know, yes. I had done with the you were too hurt. You, you, I, was, you I was really hurt. I was yeah. really hurt. And I didn't know how hurt I was because it took a couple of years to deal with that. Mm. Um, so, you know, I just I just parked spirituality. And then three weeks later, I was sort of walking towards South Kensington Station just for a wander in the West End. And I was crossing the road of uh, Butte's Butte Street, just by the Zetland Arms pub. And I just had this prompting, a strange prompting, and my head turned. And I saw the spire of this church down Sumner Place, which is the HTB church plant at Onslow Square. So I just had a quick thought. I thought, let me go and sit in there. I'll sit for a bit and then I'll go for my wander. Mm-hmm. It was a Sunday morning, 11.15 a.m., and I walked down a Sumner Place and I saw these people at the doors of this church welcoming with these incredible smiles and this love sort of oozing off them that was quite creepy, you know. <laughs> I'd never I'd never seen love like that before. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I went inside, I walked through the doors, and just then this incredible blanket of tangible peace just fell on me. And this very silent whisper in my left ear said that you're home. You're home. Yeah. That was it. You're home. A concept I'd never, no, I'd never searched for this idea of home. Yes. But the whisper said, home. Now, I'd lived in many massive mansions Bad, yeah. and beautiful temples that were worth millions of pounds. But when that whisper came, you're home it really touched something deep in my soul. I went straight upstairs. I sat in the pew. I didn't tell anyone who I was, where I was from. I'd never seen worship on guitars and drums. I'd never seen any of that. But it all felt right, and I just drank it all in. Mm. And And that's the church you go to now? That's the church I go to now. Um, So in terms of giving your life to Christ... How did that? How's that journey been for you? And, and and how has Christ changed you? Christ has changed me in the most fascinating way that I've not even been able to process yet. Mm. You know, just that day I secretly gave my life to Jesus. Eight months later, I got water baptized. In the, my ninth month, I had no food, nowhere to live, no job. Yes. 
a, a, an aspect in my life that I had never seen. No, literally, you know? yeah. I was traveling on first class in Jaguars, Range Rovers and Aston Martins. At home, I had abundance. It was it was a season in my life that I'd never known. Mm. But there was something attractive about Christ that made me continue. In my ninth month, I was so sad because I, I had no job, mm-hmm. you know. I was ready to clean shelves in a newsagent shop. Yeah, yeah. And then I went to one of our ministries within HTB mm-hmm. and I just had this, I was sad and I was just standing there and the worship started and I had my baptism, this baptism by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. this deep, powerful encounter deep in my soul yes, yes. that was so nourishing, satisfying. And my whole demeanor changed. You know, my face literally changed from within. Yes. There was an external change. Yes. And that's when I, that's when it struck me that this, this truth of Jesus Christ is alive is not just an intellectual thought. It's a real thing. Yes. You know? It's about a relationship. It's a relationship. And so from then my journey started on several levels. First of all, I had to unlearn that I'm not in another religion. Mm. I'm in a relationship here. Because it's very easy for someone to say, well, y- you know, you were in one and now you just stepped to another. Yes, you've gone from one religion to another religion. Yeah, and in my book it got edited, but I, I did try and quote the Shawshank Redemption. Right, okay. You know, when the guy's in jail all his years and then he finally gets a chance to leave and then after he's left he can't cope, so he just hangs himself. Yes. So I was trying to say in my book that that wasn't me. Because in this encounter with Jesus Christ, he was actually de-institutionalizing me. Right. Christianity is not about an institution or a religion. It's about yes. a relationship. Yes. So I had to now start unlearning a lot yes. about not fixing and earning for God, which Hindus do. Yes. Which we all do instinctively. I mean, yeah. just, I mean just as a quick aside, we've got a whole podcast on that, on religion. Uh, I think that's number seven, but uh, on all that. But yeah, that's that, that's a, that's a natural human tendency to think, what can I do to prove myself? Exactly, it's always performance, isn't it? So, I had come from a very performance background, so this was now a season of, can you just be loved by me? Which was so difficult. Grace, yeah, it's even God's grace, not, exactly, not, not based of your effort. So, can you just be and let me love you as you are? Yes, and that's one journey that started. And continues, and it's and it's an ongoing relationship. I mean, what I find, and this for the for the listeners who who are still with us, just uh, Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling. You said you, you mentioned that uh, you, you put this fascinating thing up on Facebook, which which made me smile. And you must share it with our listeners. That as a Hindu priest, you'd prayed one day you would meet J.K. Rowling. So I, I, so I, I years I mean, and years ago, I I I sort of. Um, I had met many, quite a few famous and prominent people, but I said in my heart, if there's anyone I would love to meet in my life, it will be J.K. Rowling. At the time, through a very influential friend, I just wanted to send a message to her that thank you for the way your books have impacted my heart and shaped my thoughts. That didn't even happen. No. But then a few weeks ago... A few weeks ago... Because uh, you work at Trumpers, don't I you? I work at George F. Trumper. It's a gentleman's perfumery in the West End. 
I went out of the shop just for a couple of minutes to hail a taxi for one of our clients. And when I turned back to go into the shop, this lady was looking through our window and I went inside the shop as, you know, just normal. And I looked through the window and to my beautiful shock, it was J.K. Rowling. (laughs) And then she walked off. I couldn't believe it for a second because there were no cameras, no crowds, no nothing, you know. And so she went around the corner and I, and I, I never do this. I don't stalk people, but I just, I sort of, I, I literally ran out of the shop and just followed her and she was staring into the next shop next to ours. And I just stood there next to her and thinking to myself, say something, you idiot. Don't just stand here next to her. Then she walked off again. And then, you know, those moments when you're, brain says go back in the shop but your legs keep going <laughs> yeah, forward right it, it was that kind of a moment and i i just followed her and then i i tapped her on the shoulder and said excuse me are you jk rowling she said yes and obviously as soon as she said the voice just gave it away us right and immediately just flowed out of my heart that look thank you you've had such a massive impact on my life i just wanted to thank you I explained to her who I was, a Hindu priest wearing orange robes, searching for love, and your books created that search for an authentic self-sacrificial love. Wow, how did you react to that? And and one tear just came out of her eye. And then I said, look, I had read so many books in, in, in so many areas of life, but your books impacted me so much in a profound way. I just wanted to thank you. And she said, oh my gosh. And another tear came out and she said, I'm so overwhelmed, so honored that you're sharing this. And then I said, "Um, I've mentioned you uh, in my book. (laughs) Truth is stranger than fiction. So, and I said that we sell my book in Trumpers, uh, the shop around the corner where you were looking into. I said, would you like a copy of my book? She said, I'd love a copy of your book. So we walked back. It it was a beautiful moment for me. We chatted on the pavement for 10 minutes. Right. There was no crowd, no disturbance. You know, God was so good. We went back into the shop and we sell our book there. So I I picked up a copy and I gave it to her and she put it straight into her bag. You gave her a signed copy, didn't you? So she put it in her bag (laughs) and it just came out of my mouth. I wasn't being cheeky. I just said, would you like me to sign that for you? (laughs) She said, I'd love you to sign it for me. She was very, she was very present, very humble and very authentic. And so I said, how would you like me to sign your name? She said, Joe, to Joe. So I said, so I wrote to Joe. Thank you for having a beautiful impact on my life. Bless you, Rahil. And then she put the book back and I just shared, you know, Joe, when your last book came out. Yes. When your last book came out, I was in Toronto at the opening of a temple. And it was coming out at one o'clock in the morning. And the very next day I had to give a 10 minute speech in front of 30,000 people. Wow. And it was all practiced and rehearsed for a few days. And I said, Joe, your book, I told one of my friends that you need to get this book to me as soon as it comes out. This fellow went 30 miles out of Toronto. I was telling Joe Rowling this whole thing and she was just like fixed on the story. (laughs) He went 30 miles out of Toronto, he got the book and he came to my hotel room at one in the morning, knocked on my door and and I took the book. I got all my filtered coffee ready. And I started drinking filtered coffee. I read, read, read till 10 o'clock in the morning. I went to the ceremony. I gave my speech. 
in front of uh, all these people. And then I tell my colleagues I've got diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them knew, some of the priests knew that you've not got diarrhea. You just want to finish your Harry Potter. (laughs) And I went back to my hotel and I finished it in 23 hours flat. And as I was sharing this with her, I just said, look, Joe, that's how much of an impact your book had on me. That's how central it was to my life and my search for a love that I didn't know at the time. Yeah. And she was just, she just kept on saying the same thing. I'm, I'm so overwhelmed and, and honored, you know, wow. and, 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 and grateful. And I said, look, Joe, I, this is what I said years ago, that one day I'd love to meet you and no one else. And then she said, and here we are. <laughs> and here we are. So that was my... That was God's got this great sense of humour, isn't he? Great sense of humour. Great sense of humour. Great sense of humour. And that desire, you know, and how, you know... Yeah, it's like what matters to me matters to God. Yeah. He's a father. He's a father and he wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship and, you know, it's not a super, super spiritual dream, but as a dad in heaven, it matters. Yes. It matters. And, you know, for me, that was such a personal, special moment, not because she's famous, but it was a desire. It was a dream that was so bizarre, mm. so bizarrely impossible. But my father in heaven can make yeah. it possible. Yeah. Rahil, thank you so much for sharing your life story with us. As, as, as we said at the beginning, truth is stranger than fiction. It was a joy. And it's really amazing. The book is by Rahil Patel, Found by Love. A Hindu Priest Encounters Jesus Christ, uh, published by Instant Apostle, who is, uh, which is run by Manoj Raitatar, who we also have a podcast of as well. But uh, you can get it on Amazon. We'll have a link on, on our website. You can actually get it from Trumpers as well. You can get it from Trumpers as well. And you can get it from HDB Bookshop, various Christian bookshops too, and uh, Amazon as well, yeah. yeah. But thank you so much. Thank you again to our listeners for, for, for tuning in. And uh, it's been great to have you, Rahul. And um, it's a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Okay. Goodbye from us now. Goodbye. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour, head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drstanil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.